unfortunate statements, unfortunate emails can trigger a journey for an organization uh, that can be long and expensive. Captain Integrity Production and the law firm of Nelson Mullins presents Stark Integrity, the Stark Law and Compliance Podcast. Stark Integrity explores the world of the Stark Law and healthcare compliance with our nationally recognized Stark Law, Fraud, and Compliance Attorney, Bob Wade. Bob has a national healthcare legal and compliance practice that focuses on the minions of the Anti-Kickback Statute, False Claims Act, and the Stark Law, including fair market value and commercial reasonableness. Although Bob is a law partner in the national law firm of Nelson Mullins, the views expressed in Stark Integrity are Bob's personal views and not the views of the firm, and they are not intended to be legal advice. Now, without further ado... I give you Captain Integrity, Bob Wade. Welcome to Stark Integrity, the Stark Law and Compliance Podcast. My name is Bob Wade, and I am your host. And today I have a very long-term friend of mine that I am excited to be with me today. So I'm going to turn over to Gabe and have Gabe introduce himself and uh, let him know a little bit about his background, and then we'll get into the subject matter of the podcast. Uh, Thank you, Bob. Uh, So my name is Gabe Imperato. I'm a partner in the Nelson Mullins Law Firm in uh, the Fort Lauderdale office of the firm, and a member of the firm's uh, healthcare practice group and team leader in the healthcare uh, enforcement compliance and litigation team. Brief bio, uh, started my career in the Office of General Counsel of the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, uh, where my clients were the various federal uh, agencies that regulate the healthcare industry, Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services, the Office of Inspector General, the Social Security Administration, the Public Health Service, etc., After serving uh, as a trial attorney and deputy counsel of the agency for nine years, I uh, entered private practice in South Florida and uh, have been practicing uh, healthcare law from Fort Lauderdale since 1986. Uh, I'm board certified by the Florida Bar as a health lawyer. I have done most things that a health lawyer would or could do in a in a relatively long career, but mostly uh, and presently, uh, my time is spent representing individuals and organizations accused of healthcare fraud, whether it's a criminal, civil, or administrative enforcement proceeding, and uh, maybe more importantly, assisting healthcare organizations. Uh, with their uh, compliance program development and activities and acting as a compliance expert in uh, various roles with various different healthcare providers. So I'm usually uh, spending most of my hours, professional hours, uh, working in that space and try to keep up to date with uh, recent developments. Yeah. And and Gabe, that's the whole purpose of this episode is to talk about under the anti-kickback statute, 
we have all learned, and then the listeners to Stark Integrity understand that the Grieber case, mm-hmm. the long-term no, case, it, it's about the one purpose. One purpose of the transaction, if it was intended to induce referrals, then the government would say, or Quitam Relator would say, that the purpose of the arrangement was intended to induce referrals. How has that been interpreted by the courts? Well, right. So the Grieber case in 1985 established uh, the one purpose test. And if I remember the facts of that case, uh, it involved a physician who uh, was a consultant to a company that provided halter monitors. Arguably, he provided legitimate consulting services, but the court found that at least one purpose of his payment for those consulting services uh, was uh, to induce his referral of patients for those Holter monitors. And the court concluded that if one purpose of the payment uh, was to induce uh, the referral of business, then the anti-kickback statute uh, could be violated. That principle and that case uh, has been sustainable law and used in both criminal and civil enforcement actions ever since. Um, I became kind of concerned about its application maybe maybe about 10, 15 years ago when um, I had a client who had been in, uh, he was a physician who had been in consulting arrangements with various medical device companies to teach doctors how to implant hips and knees Mm -hmm. that that the device companies supplied. And the consultant arrangements were uh, arrangements that met the personal services safe harbor uh, under the kickback statute, at least on paper, okay? The Office of Inspector General brought a civil money penalty case against uh, this client uh, premised on a violation of the kickback statute. And in my discussions with the OIG attorney, you know, I I put forth the defense that, well, these consulting agreements, as far as I can tell, not only on their face meet the safe harbor for personal services, but in, in fact, this particular individual uh, performed the services uh, enumerated under the agreement, you know, on a regular basis. And therefore, my position would be that this is a safe harbor arrangement. Uh, If you read the premise for the safe harbors, uh, the the main premise is that if you fit into it, you're supposed to be protected from scrutiny or liability. I was a little bit surprised to hear from uh, the attorney for the inspector general that they were going to proceed with the enforcement action based on the one purpose test, despite the fact that the uh, arrangement that they were going to proceed against was a safe harbor arrangement. So that kind of, you know, to me, that was a little bit disconcerting because I thought that we could benefit from the protection of the safe harbors, but it was clear that the government's enforcement policy, which not only 
existed in the Inspector General's office, but we've seen in the Department of Justice in criminal cases and, in, and by relators and DOJ and Civil False Claims Act cases, where they essentially ha have taken a position that if one purpose of a payment uh, acted to induce the referral of business, it didn't matter if uh, another purpose of the payment was for legitimate services or even if the arrangement fit a safe harbor, which essentially eviscerated the protections of the safe harbor. Exactly. And so this, for 10 or 15 years, I'm looking at this and thinking, there's something wrong with this. <laughs> exactly. and, and, and then recently, we had the U.S. v. Holland decision. And, and that's the question. So we're heading now into the U.S. v. Holland decision under the anti-kickback statute. And how, how, how did that court handle that issue, Gabe? This was... Uh, the uh, United States District Court in the Northern District of Georgia. So it's a district court decision, which, you know, has limited precedential value, even in the own, its own district. But for the first time, a court identified this apparent contradiction between the principle behind the one purpose test mm -hmm. and the theoretical protection of either a safe harbor under the kickback statute or an arrangement that was otherwise a legitimate arrangement because payment was consistent with fair market value and it was otherwise a, a legal arrangement. And so when I saw this uh, decision where the court identified this contradiction for the first time in, in, in an, uh, you know, an authoritative opinion, I was like, geez, I guess it's not only my imagination <laughs> that this apparent contradiction between enforcement policy and application of the one purpose test and the protections of the safe harbor uh, came to loggerheads, if you will. And make no mistake about it, the, the government and Relators Council have used the one purpose test to leverage uh, criminal pleas and, and civil settlement agreements almost applying the one purpose test in a per se way. Yeah. One purpose of the payment induces a referral. Therefore, you're violating the kickback statute. And if you want to fight that battle in court, good luck. Otherwise, you can agree to this plea or settle this simple money penalty or false claims act case. Yeah. So Gabe, giving you an example, let's say that we have an arrangement that is fair market value, services rendered, Let's say it's a medical directorship mm -hmm. and there is a stupid email mm -hmm. that said, we have to do this arrangement because the doctor, if we don't do this arrangement, the doctor will not refer to us. But we're fitting solely within a safe harbor. Mm -hmm. So how, how does that align with the Grieber case and then secondarily the Howland case? So that circumstance would be the optimal circumstance for the government to apply the one purpose test. Correct. But it's optimal because we have that email evidence, which otherwise colors intent. Yep. Okay, that, that's where the government would say the one purpose test should apply because 
for collateral reasons, we know the intent of the agreement was to induce referrals, okay? But what if that email wasn't there? Yeah. What if the medical director agreement was established uh, based on the advice of uh, counsel in that arrangement, and it met the personal services safe harbor, which based on the elements that you described, it would be pretty close to that. Yeah. Um, and there was no collateral evidence of other state of mind. The intent was to meet the safe harbor and be in compliance with the kickback statute. That's where the Holland case provides uh, some level of comfort for healthcare organizations to uh, uh, attempt to manage the risk of kickback violations in situations like that, where the Holland case gives you some latitude on the application of the one purpose test. The Holland case would say, um, in the situation where we don't have that email, mm -hmm. there's no evidence of a knowing and willful violation of the kickback statute because the organization, the individuals who entered into this agreement uh, apparently relied in good faith on advice of counsel and otherwise fit into the safe harbor. And there was nothing to suggest that while moving forward, they engaged in knowing conduct, they didn't engage in the kind of willful conduct you know, disobeying the law, knowing they were disobeying the law, uh, that that establishes willfulness uh, under the statute. Yeah, so. and and I think that's the reason why education is so important to make sure that we educate the executives to make sure that they don't send, I'm going to say, stupid emails yeah. or have those stupid conversations, and that's where we can get into trouble. So from a practical perspective, based upon the Holland case with the background of the Greber case, how would you advise an organization to handle discussions regarding physician compensation arrangements? What you say and unfortunate emails do count in our compliance world. Yeah. Unfortunate statements, unfortunate emails can trigger a journey for an organization uh, that can be long and expensive. Okay, so the education piece, uh, and, and if you have a mature compliance program or compliance department in an organization, they're going to be mindful of this education piece, okay? And they, and they should be. Um, so assuming that we have a sophisticated organization that doesn't fall into those traps, and now you have a situation where you want to enter into an agreement with uh, a, an important referral source, say, to your hospital, a, a heavy admitter physician. The, the Holland case suggests that an agreement like that can be fit into a safe harbor. The organization can be advised accordingly uh, how to fit into the safe harbor. Uh, the advice or guidance can be relied upon by the managers, by the CEO, by the, the in-house legal staff, by the compliance professionals to establish that arrangement and have the protection of the good faith, good faith advice of counsel. Now, let me digress a little. There's a difference between advice of counsel 
and good faith reliance on the guidance of counsel. The main difference is the following. Advice of counsel is where Bob Wade asks Gabe Imperato a question, and I answer the question and send you a written opinion on your question. You're the client. I'm the attorney. It's a confidential question. It's confidential advice. You're keeping it to yourself. Uh, and and it otherwise constitutes the advice of counsel and hasn't been waived. The Holland case says, well, if parties otherwise rely in good faith on information that they've received about the legality of an arrangement, even if it wasn't from their lawyer in a direct attorney-client relationship, uh, it can be sustainable as demonstrating that the intent of the parties wasn't to violate or disobey the law, uh, but was to try to establish an arrangement that was compliant. In the Holland case, two of the defendants were CEOs of uh, hospitals who entered into an arrangement with another defendant who was a referral source to the hospital. But these arrangements were reviewed both by the hospital council which had an attorney-client relationship with the hospital, not necessarily with the individual defendants. And the referral source counsel reviewed the arrangements too, and both gave it their blessing. The court in Holland said, I, I can't conclude willfulness where these individuals basically moved ahead with the arrangement under those circumstances. They relied on good faith, on on counsel's advice about the viability of the contracts, even a direct attorney-client relationship. That's important for our efforts to, to manage compliance risk because you can use the framework of the decision in the Holland case to evaluate certain arrangements. And, you know, for us as lawyers, we're not going to give unreasonable advice. Right. But we know the difference between reasonable advice that'll stand the scrutiny test and advice that just won't fly. Okay, this gives us, I think, more latitude to protect organizations with, with kind of that lawyer advice and guidance to to at least manage compliance risks in a, in a sensible way. You know, I've seen uh, reports come up in healthcare organizations where they allege a kickback. Uh, arrangement. And, and I've seen organizations sort of freeze on that and don't know how to move the ball forward to a resolution of the issue, any corrective or remedial action that might be necessary, or to establish a relationship that could be protected. This, this will help in that regard in, in moving the ball when those things come up and, and organizations, you know, have to deal with you know, the vicissitudes of allegations of fraud and kickback violations. Yeah. So I, I, I think at the end of the day, the one purpose test is not dead. No. Okay. And, and so let me speak to that for a second. So one question that, that, you know, a litigator would ask looking at this opinion, you know, this, this opinion kind of takes the Department of Justice to task on yep. the one purpose test. So what are they going to do about it? Are they going to appeal this? Uh, are they going to just let it be? Because it's a district court opinion. Yep. 
as a precedential matter, this opinion doesn't even have precedent even in the Northern District of Georgia with a different district court judge. Correct. So they could let it go and fight the battle in another case and sustain the one purpose test for the future. So we'll we'll see what happens, you know, whether they even bother to appeal it or not. But but whether they do or don't, this still gives us a way to deal with the many situations we've often confronted over the years where we have a legitimate arrangement. Um, it's maybe even a safe harbor arrangement. And we don't have to get spooked by the one purpose test, you know, because we can rely on this case and, and other cases built around it to advise clients whether it was a willful violation of the kickback statute or not. Yeah. Yeah. So. And Gabe, I'm sure you've heard me say this in conferences before uh, that you can hope for, you can expect. And, and the listeners to Stark Integrity know that I work for a Catholic organization. Yeah, it's not illegal to pray for referrals. <laughs> it's just yeah that you cannot have that connection and those stupid emails or conversations with physicians. Yeah. Uh, that's what could be deadly. But by the way, on that on that point, the court even commented on that phenomenon in this case. The record in this case established that the hospital administrators discussed the volume of referrals that would be received by the hospital if they established the relationship with the referral source, the uh, expectant mother's clinic. Okay. Sure. And the court said, well, why would it be unusual for hospital administrators Absolutely. to enter into an arrangement like this and not want to know what kind of volume of cases they are going to receive. The court said that by itself doesn't establish willfulness under the kickback statute. And of course, we know from experience that DOJ, Relators Council, always likes to pluck those conversations as evidence of intent to violate the kickback statute. Yeah. And the court wasn't buying it here, amongst other sort of favorite positions that we've seen the Department of Justice take to try to portray intent to violate the kickback statute. In, in exactly. And I think that's a huge point. Yeah. Gabe, this has been an awesome, awesome conversation. So now it's time for the three Captain Integrity punch points for this episode. So I'm going to turn it over to you. Well, the first thing I would say is that this is a significant decision because it's the first time that I've seen a court identify this contradiction between the one purpose test and the protections that the safe harbor regulations are supposed to give uh, members of our healthcare industry. I, I think that's important. From a defense perspective, if you're having to defend one of these cases, and from a compliance perspective in advising clients on how to structure their arrangements. Amen. Uh, the, other, the other point that I think is important is how the court refused to find intent based on a one-purpose test analysis and instead uh, looked for evidence of what they called willful conduct and, and found that 
the parties who, who entered in this arrangement did not engage in willful conduct and therefore did not intend to violate the law and violate the kickback statute. And, and, and really, finally, I think the decision exposes uh, kind of the shortcomings of the one purpose test yeah. and maybe the way it has been applied historically uh, that has put individuals and organizations in a position of liability for activities which actually may not even violate the kickback statute. Exactly. So, exactly. So, Gabe, um, just provide our listeners your contact information. Uh, well, as I said, I'm a, a partner in the Nelson Mullins Law Firm in the Fort Lauderdale office. My email is gabriel.imperato, I-M-P-E-R-A-T-O, at, and then all one word, nelsonmullins.com. And you can reach me through that email really at any time. Sounds good, Gabe. Thank you, Bob. Well, thank you. This has been an awesome episode. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Stark Integrity the Stark Law and Compliance Podcast. If you have any questions regarding this episode, the Stark Law, or healthcare compliance, you can contact me at bobwadecaptainintegrity at gmail.com or my law firm email address at bob.wade at nelsonmullins.com. You can review this and any other episode of Stark Integrity at the Captain Integrity website at captainintegrity.com. You can also follow me on LinkedIn under Bob Wade. I hope the three Captain Integrity Punch Points will help you with the Stark Law and compliance. In closing, remember that integrity depends on you and me.